Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, the show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. The only real estate brokerage that donates 50% of its net commissions to 501c3 nonprofit organizations dedicated to fighting climate change. Amy, Vance, a pleasure to meet both of you. Let's get a little wild on this podcast. Um, I appreciate you both being here. Great. Nice to meet you. Happy to be here. It's a pleasure to meet you, Ethan. Pleasure to meet both of you. And what we always like to do is get the show started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the moment. So we will start with Vance on that one. Sure. Uh, Vance Martin. I'm president of the Wild Foundation and uh, is based here in Boulder. That's our headquarters. We have people here and there. Uh, the Wild Foundation is um, a what they call a 501c3, a nonprofit charity uh, uh, organization. We do the nature conservation work. Um, our One of our little mottos is protecting through connecting. We like to connect people to nature, wild nature, wildlife. And we also believe in the connectivity of nature, um, saving half the world's lands and seas. Nature needs half is our kind of goal. And um, uh, that's a little bit about me. How I got here is a long story because that's what happens when you have a few years under your belt. Amy, over to you. Amy, over to you. Yeah, Ethan. So I believe in the power of people to change the world. And um, in one way or another, throughout my entire uh, adult career, I have been working on mobilizing that power and um, coordinating it for what I believe are actions that will benefit both people and the planet. Uh, I came to Wild Foundation at the um, end of uh, my uh research phase and studying uh, for my PhD at uh, uh, Colorado State University. Um, and I was uh, then uh, a scholar in social movement theory, as well as environmental policy. And when I found the Wild Foundation, which has been um, building a global social movement around keeping Earth wild uh, for more than 40 years now, uh, it, it just seemed like the perfect fit. And it was. And so I've been here for almost seven years. Well, that's incredible. And I'm curious how you became so committed to nature conservation. What's like your origin story before university or schooling? Well, I mean, we all have, you know, the camping stories and the encounters with wildlife and and whatnot. But I, I think that my commitment to conservation is actually as, as much as I feel a, a deep and abiding connection with the natural world and, and it, there's no place I feel more at home in than a, a wild area. But, um, uh, you know, my commitment to conservation really stems from my commitment to excellence. I don't believe so much in good guys and bad guys, um, but I do believe that mediocrity is the enemy. And too often we make these compromises with ourselves because I don't know, we're trying to be realistic. We're trying to be practical and we know what excellence is and, and we can, we can kind of sense what it would feel like to live in like the ideal world, but we tell ourselves it's never in our reach. And, um, nowhere have I seen, um, braver and more, um, necessary visionaries than in the conservation field that's saying, look, we have this vital civilization that we need to maintain, but we actually can't maintain it unless we also keep earth wild because wilderness is the foundation of not just civilization, but all of life, our lives included. And, um, and so I think it's their commitment that inspired me as well as the excellence of their vision, even in the face of a lot of uncertainty, criticism, and doubt. Amy, that was beautiful. And I, and I love that. And I, I don't really think that we're ever really separate from the wild. We create these plastic walls. I talk about being in these little boxes, but in reality, 
humans are wild. There's living things all around us. And like we have this, these, we put on these blinders and we think we're our safe little spaces, but they're just constructs. And we're still in this wild, vast universe, if anything. Before we kind of get into talking about the benefits of rewilding the planet, I did want to pass it back to Vance briefly, because he has, he has obviously, of course, you guys are both with the same organization. I had, he had this quote that he said in a video from what must have been like a decade or two ago, where if he said, if you want to do something and someone tells you it's possible you're on the right track i i just i i think that's an amazing quote i love that i'm curious how you came to that like perspective to begin with well um thank you for asking the question ethan um it it sort of uh brings to mind one of my guiding principles and that is if you want to achieve something that you've never had before then you have to do something you've never done. So life is, if you want to make an impact, and in my mind, why else are we here? Yes, we're here to have a good time, to raise a good family, to uh, you know pay the bills and all that. I've had a lifetime of that. I have children and grandchildren and all that kind of stuff. But beyond that, stepping out beyond ourselves, we're in a world that needs help. People need help. Nature needs help. Uh, not that it will survive if we don't help it. It will survive. We, we won't. Um, right. so it, it, my reaching beyond in order to do something that has impact. Um, most people don't think that way. And I'm not saying I'm any bit better or worse or, or anything like that. It's not an ego statement. It's just saying the reality is most people define their parameters and spend most of their life not asking the questions of how do you go beyond those per parameters in order to discover what's there. So most people, you know, especially as you get a little bit older, <laughs> and that's where I am in my life. You know, I, I, I have gained life experience, as they say, instead of A-G-E. Um, <laughs> but as you get a little bit older, um, I've watched it. You know, people tend to narrow their horizons and to say and to define their life by what they can't do. Oh, that's not possible. So that's a red flag to me, boy. It means get stuck in there because if somebody says you can't do something, there's something in there to be done. Certainly. Um, I'm a big believer in the idea that anything is possible. And we're going to get into talking about um, reserving 50% of the planet to be wild spaces. And that seems like, in, in my mind, I mean, I'm thinking about literally limitless possibilities. Humans can do anything. We can break the rules of gravity and stuff. I'm sure physicists would get after me because of that. Let's let's pass it back to Amy for now to stay on track to, to kind of explain what the benefits wild spaces offer to humanity in particular. Well, so let's let's just go back to basics, right? Humanity was born in wilderness. When we talk about Mother Earth, we're talking about the wilderness. And just just to, to, to preface all of this, Van said, if you want to do something you've never done before, or if you, if, you, if you want to have something you've never done before, you have to do something you've never done before. Well, actually, the flip side of that is that we are about ready to do something that's never been done before on this planet in a negative sense. For 500 million years, more than that, we've had this protective biosphere that has supported life and that's covered the planet, right? Um, we are at this precipice where we have less wilderness, we have less nature than we've ever had. And we don't know what life looks like. I mean, science can, can give us some guesses, but we don't know what life looks like after that. So there is that, that kind of existential question, but more than that, our identity, comes from the wilderness. The human spirit 
was born in the wilderness. The things that we admire most about ourselves, our ingenuity, our adaptability, our, uh, our ability to work together in groups and solve problems, all of these things we inherited from the, the, the prey that we hunted and the predators that hunted us. This, this, these qualities came from wilderness. So when we remove wild nature from the surface of the earth, not only are we jeopardizing our survival, but we're jeopardizing who we are and the memory of who we are. And, you know, maybe, and I don't think this is possible, and I think it would be kind of ridiculous to do this anyway, we could engineer the life support services that we need, and we don't have that capacity now, but theoretically, maybe we could engineer these life support services and live on an entirely urban planet with no wild spaces whatsoever, just a park and a garden and a zoo here and there. But who would want that? Who would want to live in a place where there's nothing undiscovered and there's nothing unknown and there's no, there's no corner of the world where there might be dragons, you know? So, so there's more to this question than just our survival. Um, it's, it's a question of identity and who we want to be as a people. And we can make that choice right now. Right now, we're kind of unconsciously making that choice. The Wild Foundation is kind of trying to push that choice into a more conscious level where we think about, okay, so I don't just have to go down this path of destroying everything. There's an option of preserving it. Now, how do we do this? Right. So, I mean, I think we're, we're obviously making a choice one way or the other. So the the question is, what is the best choice we can be possibly making? Um, well, at this point, I, I do. I want to pass it back to Vance for a second to talk about um, the kind of the history of Wild Foundation and some of the biggest projects that you're currently undertaking over there. Yeah, good. Thanks for that. Um, look, I, I totally subscribe to everything that Amy's just said. Uh, I have a deeply philosophical value-driven side to myself. Uh, that's what we think WILD is based on. Amy has the same. And we're a practical conservation organization. Uh, how do you take all of this, uh, this philosophical and real concept that we are wild creatures, our DNA is wild, take a look into your gut if you want to see something really wild, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, we're, we're wild creatures who have forgotten that through our pride, uh, through our intellect. We've gone beyond ourselves a little bit. Um, uh, I had a friend who, uh, whose mother had a very dry wit. And when he graduated from... Uh, uh, the Virginia Military Academy, he came up to her all full of himself and waved his, his diploma. And she looked at him and dryly said, well, I can see that you're now educated beyond yourself. And um, <laughs> so, um, you know, we're a practical conservation organization. We, we actually started in Africa by a very world-famous conservationist named Ian Player. And Makubu Ntombele, who was a Zulu elder of the old tradition. He was um, of the oral tradition. He didn't read or write. He was Ian Player's companion in the wilderness as they saved the white rhino and did lots of things over the years. I met Ian. We began to work together a long time ago. He became my mentor. He convinced me to move back to the States. I was living abroad for many years, and um, I gave a four-year commitment in 1980 and uh, here, here we are still still at it. So our, our, our conservation work, you know, um, I, 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 I love the expression, you have to kick the tires on something. If you're going to buy a car, you know, you walk around and you kick the tires and you have a look at it. Well, a, a conservation organization needs to have on the ground success in whatever it chooses to do, whether it's strictly speaking wildlife conservation, which we do, our biggest project is in West Africa, in the war zone that is the nation called Mali. And there's a herd of desert adapted elephants living in the Sahel. And we work with the local people to empower them to have uh, on, on what's called community led conservation. We work from top of government to community level, but it's the local people who 
get the benefits. Um, it's very complicated, but it's very, in the end, straightforward. If people benefit from wild nature, they will save it. They will learn to love it. Uh, and when you love something, you're going to save it. So that that's one of our big projects. We're also working in the Amazon to with uh, uh, at least one um, uh, tribe and uh, helping them secure and protect their uh, rainforest lands. Uh, we have a, a global youth uh, network called Coalition Wild. Um, historically, every four or five years, we did something called the World Wilderness Congress. Um, we haven't done one in a couple of years. We had to cancel the last one in March of 2020. Gee, I wonder why. Um, <laughs> and um, so we, we do a, a whole range of things. And again, all under this banner of nature needs half because science tells us that, you know, at least half the earth's lands and seas need to be intact and, and, and functional so it can provide the life support, right? It's called, the, the jargon is ecological services. I just call it life support because without it, life cannot either survive or evolve. Um, so, Yeah, it's interesting that even trying to talk about conserving half is very, very difficult to achieve. It's like only half of the world to like be allowed to flourish and have plenty of life. I will pass this next question to either of you. I'm curious what one of your thoughts is on the distinction between conservation and ecological restoration, which kind of has unlimited growth potential versus saving what already exists. Um, Do you, Vance? Yeah, would you, would you like I'll, I'll, I'll start it off. I mean... The, the, the usual uh, dynamic or uh, the, the question is, what's the difference between conservation and preservation? Um, and, uh, you know, conservation is an, an active, active field of, of um, uh, uh, protecting enough nature so that it can remain intact and functioning. You mentioned e e ecological restoration. That is yes. a that is a a, a, a um, an aspect of conservation because you are restoring a damaged landscape so that it's it returns to a state of functionality. And I'll make a distinction here. What's the difference between ecological restoration and rewilding? Um, Rewilding is a type of restoration, but it has a different goal. Ecological restoration is normally, you see that field out there that's been hammered for decades and it's and it doesn't have any topsoil and, and there's no trees. Well, let's get it back in shape so we can grow good food for us and it's a nice, healthy, and that's ecological restoration. And, you know, it, it, there's many different types of it. Rewilding is... Gee, I wonder what that big field or that valley used to look like and how, how did it function before it was logged or, um, you know, otherwise impacted by human beings. Let's try to create the ecological conditions where nature self-heals and then continues to evolve in the way that nature wants to, not just to serve us. So rewilding um, rewilding is part of ecological restoration, but ecological restoration as practiced is not always rewilding. So there's an, another aspect here I, I want to touch on, and, and that's kind of the traditional way that conservation has been viewed um, versus what um, many conservation groups are actually doing now. Um, and there's this this concept called fortress conservation, where it's basically like we're going to we're going to put a fence around this land and no one's going to go inside of it. And that land is going to exist for the tigers or the monkeys or whatever kind of exotic and threatened species um, lives there. And um, that's not what the Wild Foundation does, nor is it what many conservation groups do nowadays. Um, what we're really looking for is 
to restore the ecological or preserve the ecological integrity of the land to ensure that it's interconnected so that there's genetic flow, there's elemental flow, um, and that um, there's no industrial extraction or permanent industrial infrastructure in those places. Um, in fact, some of the best, highest quality wildlands in the world is also occupied by human populations, indigenous groups. While indigenous people only make up 5% of Earth's population, they steward 40% of the remaining wildlands and 80% of our biodiversity. Um, and they do this while there are many contemporary indigenous scientists They've done this largely through unscientific processes, cultural processes, because their cultures are conservation. And so um, I just want to make that distinction that when we say we want to protect half the planet, we're not saying turn half the planet into Yellowstone National Park. Um, we're essentially saying, you know, that there's, there's, you know, there's, there's different types of protected areas, and certainly the, that's a cornerstone of this effort. But we are also working with communities around the world to ensure the integrity of the landscapes around them. And thank you for doing that. But what I was going to say, it's it's a it's a hard sell rewilding when, when it doesn't demonstrably benefit people because humans are so concerned with their own mechanism or, or like the societies that we've created we're so focused we're not thinking about the mycelium network that's floating around in the space behind us or the the insects in the ground so i just think it's really hard to 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 get that especially when i'm always talking about how to use economics to fight climate change it seems like rewilding would be a really tough sell so i wanted to ask um i suppose again either of you what advice do you give to someone who sees themselves as separate or superior or above nature well, can I just jump in here yes, really quickly? Please do. Because because Vance Vance will tell you at some point in this interview that he is he's a conservationist, yes, but he's also a relationship counselor. Um and and if we imagine our relationship with nature like we do any of our other relationships, a, a relationship with a romantic partner, for example. Inside of that relationship, no matter how healthy and intimate it is, each of those people need space for themselves. We can think of this as guys or girls night out, right? If you don't have a space for yourself, you're not healthy. You can't, you can't explore a part of yourself. And um, I like to think of setting aside places where ecological processes, wild processes have primacy in the same way that I do when we set aside space for our partner and our relationship by allowing them to have space they're healthier and our relationship is healthier as well. Yeah, that was awesome. Now I'll just spin off from that to say that the other part of relationship is engagement. And uh, it's consciously knowing, sensing, wanting to know what your partner needs. Uh, that could be a business partner, uh, as, as Amy said, a romantic partner can be a good friend. If you rip off your partner, what's going to happen? Dysfunction? At best, dysfunction. So as well as understanding that your partner needs some space for itself, so give nature some room on land and sea so she can do her thing, but also engage and understand that this, the life support that is created is essential to our life on earth. Therefore, we have the mo we are in an essential relationship, people and nature. And most people don't don't realize it because right. of this paradigm of it's just like a big piggy bank or uh, you know, uh, go into a, a shopping mall and take 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 whatever you want. Um, well, I think a lot of people are waking up to know that, that that's, that's a fast way to not only dysfunction, but to ruin. So uh, when I say to people, uh, when I meet people who think uh, they're king or queen of the world and they don't need nature, I just ask them some very basic questions. You know, t 
tell me about how you want to breathe, you know, Mm -hmm. clean water. I mean, you know, these kind of simple questions. I don't normally challenge people, nor do I try to change their minds unless they want to engage me. Um, I find trying to change people's mind who don't want to engage me to be an exercise in futility. And I would much rather uh, do, do something else rather than feel uh, a high degree of uh, l- lack of appreciation. <laughs> those are those are wise words, and I'm glad to have learned that lesson in my teens rather than later on in life. Uh, I love that's why I love this show. Just hearing people's perspectives. I don't try to push any sort of objective. Of course, I'll ask clarifying questions. But um, yeah, and then as far as that that breakup analogy, uh, I had never heard that. Like, if you are ripping off your partner consistently, you might break up, and then they'll just move on to live without you. And in which case, if nature does that, we all don't exist anymore. But um, I do want to get into talking about this um, half of all is it half of all land on Earth? So just basically, how how much nature do we need to be in balance, and where is this campaign for half coming from? Yeah. Oh, go ahead. No, yes. no, go, go ahead. Well, I, I'll, can I take it from like the 1970s and then oh, you yeah. can take it from 2009? Um, so back in the 1970s, um, a couple of scientists, the Odoms, were researching wetlands in Florida. And what they started to observe is that um, once more than approximately half of a landscape was degraded, uh, the ecological functionality of that landscape, the life support services of the landscape, they weren't reduced by half. They would precipitously just kind of fall off. Um, and what we call this, right, is a tipping point mm-hmm. that we cross these thresholds and then there's a precipitous loss of the ecological services. And as um, time went by, more and more research um, began to come to light to show that this applied not just at a landscape by landscape level, but it applies at a planetary level. So while there's some there's some landscapes like rainforests that require a lot more than half, they require 80 percent before they they reach their their threshold. Um, approximately across all landscapes, we're looking at about 50%. So that's where this idea came from in terms of contemporary science. Now, there's another side to the story with um, indigenous leaders, their observations, their vision, and I think Vance should get into that. (laughs) Well, yeah, uh, the the science on this is, is increasingly clear. Uh, and why is it increasingly clear is because of the uh, uh, technological ab- ability that has blossomed since late 70s, 1980 on re- remote sensing, viewing the earth, assessing where we are. When when I was a young boy, the, the, you couldn't do these kind of things, you know. So now we, we actually can assess the systems a lot more. Um, the, the thing about our indigenous brothers and sisters is that it's not about science. It's about what's the right thing to do. The right thing to do is to share the earth um, with each other um, and to share with nature. Nature provides for us, we must provide for her. So it's a very simple values-based culturally based reality. And one of our contentions at the Wild Foundation is that science and economics and policy, all of which we work with extensively, are all very important. Uh, and these are the these are the tools that will help us make decisions. But that's the key word. These are tools. What's the what's the hand that holds the tools? It's, it's human culture. So there, it, to be a successful, efficiently long-term conservationist or anything, you need to know the culture that you're working with. You need, if you're in a business deal, you sell houses, sorry, real, mm-hmm. real estate, pardon me. Um, 
you know, what do you do half the time? You're assessing the, the potential buyer. Who are they? What do they really need? What kind of house do they really need? Are they really viewing this thing cor- correctly? So you're, you're, you're automatically in relationship. You have a culture that, that creates a relationship, right? And if it's going to be successful, you don't want to rip, rip the other person off. It's nice to make some money. There's, 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 there's nothing wrong with that. Um, so, yeah, so it's, it's, it's culture. And we, ex- we extend that to, um, to some of the tr- traditional arts in the humanities. So you'll see a lot of our projects have storytelling, have the arts, um, uh, um, f- photography, uh, books, writing, uh, a lot of things like that, because that in, that is who we are. Culture informs us who we are. And what better place to be in order to be effective and to survive than to know who you are? Definitely. And I, I know who I am as the guy who, who gives away half of his uh, money to organizations uh-huh. that work on environmental issues. Um, I don't, I, I, I don't know how we can get people to agree to do something like this, to, to give away half of our spaces. People love go doing their fishing and, you know, they, we're like, we're in this phase right now where we're sucking all the resources out and consuming it so we can live in these big lavish lifestyles. I mean, for example, in Boulder, we can't even agree how many people can live in a single house. There was a huge debate over the zoning laws. So how can we get humanity beyond just talking about climate change to actually agree on protecting half of our, of our wild spaces? Well, you know, I don't know. <laughs> it's a good, it's a good, honest podcast response. I like it. I, I don't know. It's never been done before. But I have some hypotheses because of my background, and we're working on that. But with Boulder, I want to get back to Boulder really quickly. Over 60% of Boulder is protected. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I mean, Boulder, Boulder's doing something right uh, there. And um, it also shows that you can have you can have a, a high quality of life, a high standard of life, and um, support nature around you as well. Um, but there's another aspect of this too, is that on a planetary level, we still have 50% about, maybe a little under right now, but 50% of the planet left that's intact. So it's still there. It's not protected yet. We haven't set it to, aside to say this has to stay intact. But right now, 50% of nature, land and sea, is functioning more or less correctly. And so we have this opportunity right now because we know 50% is as essential as keeping the temperature under 1.5 degrees, right? Um, So we have this opportunity right now where it's like we have the nature here. We can set it aside. This is economically, politically, and ecologically going to be the most efficient way to do this. And then we can innovate based on, on that kind of necessary limitation. We can innovate um, the, the, the processes and the technology we need to continue to improve our civilization. But we're also on the precipice of something really dangerous, right? Because in the next 25 years, we're going to add 25 million kilometers of road to the planet. We're going to double the amount of urban square footage. 25 years from now, there's going to be a lot less nature left. And our need for it isn't going to be less, but it's going to be less. The question is, when is it more efficient to protect nature? When we have it or when we have to restore, including extinct species, on an unimaginable scale? Do you think we can have like green, like mixed spaces where cities have like, I've seen like these pictures of like animals crossing over roads on like these green bridges. Can we do stuff like that? And can that count for part of it as well? Yes and no. Vance should take this. But I mean, we we really do need intact spaces. That being said, there's some really interesting research out there, some really good stuff, um, especially from the Center for um, Large Landscape Conservation, where they're saying that in order to get to half, we're going to have to have a lot of corridors. that basically connect wild spaces between each other Mm -hmm. and that's that's basically the reality of where where we're at right now 
Um, but but Vance can speak to this more. Uh, that's fine with me. I just wanted to revert to one thing to say, how do we do this when you can't get the Boulder City Council to agree how, how many people in a house? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, you, you, you want a, a lesson in, in self-harm. Go to some of these major UN climate change talks and biodiversity talks as they, you know, they're, 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 they're exact. Uh, they're, they're a demonstration of exactly what you said. Looks impossible, you know. Um, now, I, I bring it down to a very simple level. And, and I want to congratulate you because what do you do in your own life? You know, you, you're not a, you know, you're not a professional conservationist. My experience is that most successful conservation awareness of nature is done by non-professionals. It's done by like what you're doing. You, you meet people that, are, that, that are, are, are doing it. You dedicate part of your life to it, whether it's through awareness, through a podcast or through money. Um, maybe you're a, a person with a, 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 you know, a, a ranch. Well, figure out how to run that ranch right. Maybe it's a working ranch, but I tell you, there's, there are ranches I've been on that are called working wilderness. And boy, some of them are outstanding. Um, so, the, you know, do what you can do. The most important thing is, hello, wake up. Time to do something. <laughs> yeah. And, and one thing too, I, I did say, I don't know, and, and I don't know how, how we're exactly the roadmap to get to where we want to go. That being said, Wild has taken some steps um, in that direction as has um, other institutions. And so 12 years ago, when Wild was the first global NGO to uh, publicly declare that we need to protect half and we launched the Nature Needs Half Network and coalition at that time, there were just, I mean, high level conservationists from really top level conservation groups that were emailing us and saying that, of course, privately, I know that this needs to be done, but publicly, I would never say that because I would be laughed in my face and you will be too. Um, and so, and that speaks to that, you know, the idea that um, there's just some, some things that are right, but they're impossible, so we shouldn't even try. Well, in 12 years time, we've come a long way. And last September it, at, um, in Marseille, France, um, at the, the, the last World Conservation Congress, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature holds these congresses every year, and they basically set the agenda to uh, advise United Nations processes on, on conservation. At this congress, um, we had a very ambitious and controversial proposal that um, essentially called on the IUCN to recognize the scientific necessity of protecting half and to set 30% by 2030 as a milestone. And um, there was, you know, a bit of an uproar about this, um, but with utilizing the relationships that Wild has cultivated for 50 years um, and a, a, just a great coalition of partners, we were able to secure over 98% of the NGO vote in favor of this motion. And I think it was over 86% of the government member vote. And so what 12 years ago was an impossible idea um, took one big step to becoming um, a reality at the IUCN um, uh, last September. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I think the 30 by 30, which is what you're, you're referring to, um, is gaining a lot of traction as well. And I think that's a, a great way to go. And then the 50 by 50 would be um, next. So sounds good to me. I, I, I just, you know, I'm willing to keep pushing on it. But of course, I mentioned before, you know, I, as you said, I'm not a career conservationist, but, you know, I don't even know what people would, would call me at this point. But I am very interested in businesses. So I was wondering what your perspective, either of your perspective was on the nonprofit sector and governments working on conservation versus the for-profit sector specifically having missions that are dedicated to assisting in these uh, challenges. 
I think it's, you know, I, I started off life as a private sector business person when I was real young. I had several small small businesses. I'm a great believer in in the private sector. In fact, I believe that the private sector will uh, is much more likely to lead the way to answers than is the the um, the public sector because the public sector, by definition, is very bureaucratic and um, slow to change. Um, yep. Very self aware of uh, pr- pr- protecting its own rear end. That that's what a lot of it's about. Nonprofits uh, have a role to play. Um, I think sometimes it's, um, it's a little bit, um, more important to stress what can the private sector do? Because the private sector, if they, you know, they, they want to stay in business and staying in business means continuing to earn money and increasingly, um, uh, the limits or the path ahead to continuing to have a successful business depends on an environment that is stable, that uh, you can, you know what to expect so you can make plans for a business. What's happening right now is the very beginnings of a very unstable system. Okay. We're all seeing it. I don't, I don't want to cite the examples. They're all quite obvious. The thing to, it's sort of comforting thing and discomforting thing, depending where where you where you're coming from, is that n- nature is not emotional. We may be emotional about nature. I know I am. Um, but nature is not emotional. Nature has consequences. And what we're running up against now are the consequences of our action, actions. Definitely. And so business people see, see this a lot sooner than most people because they have to look into the future. So the, the, there's more change in the private sector now. Hey, it'll, look, there's a lot, of, a lot of bad actors in, in, in the private sector. And there's a lot more awakened people in the private sector now than there was just 10 years ago because they're, the, the handwriting's on the wall. Definitely. Definitely. Uh, and, I, and if you go scroll back through the past episodes in this podcast, you can see so many people getting engaged, which is what gives me continuous hope and optimism. So I hope to spread that to as many people as possible. Continuing on the, the, the trend of optimism for someone who's listening to this, who does want to get involved and is very interested in having a positive impact. What have we seen historically as mo- most effective actions people can take to actually achieve these changes or reach these goals that we're trying to, to get to? Oh, Amy, you, that's that's your kind of question there. I, I think it's yours. I mean, I'll I'll take a stab at it, but um, look, um, over eighty percent of extinction is driven by habitat loss, and most of that habitat loss happens under completely legal conditions. Um, it's you know permits granted by governments and municipalities. It's so, I mean, in order to actually halt the drivers of both extinction and the component of climate change that is being exacerbated by the loss of nature, because um, nature and climate is one system, um, Mm -hmm. they're not separate, we have to work together as communities to um, develop to adapt our values and our actions and um, and the the laws that that bind us, and so I, I I as 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 interesting as on the ground local conservation projects are, and I mean, and certainly Wild has many of these that we're very proud of, and there's just some fabulous ones where people are are to great personal risk are are saving nature and are saving species. Those things are what our founder, Ian Player, called rear guard actions. They're defensive actions where we're basically trying to make little outposts of healthy, wild nature so that there's something left to protect in the future. But we have to become much more um, offensive about this. We have to become much more proactive. 
Um, and in order to do that, we have to work together in our communities and across our communities to change laws and to change the expectations about how we relate to nature. Amy, how do you stay motivated in times of hopelessness? It's, um, I don't, I don't believe in hopelessness, honestly. Like, I, it's just not an option for me. And I guess I'm lucky in that regard. Um, I know that many people struggle with this. But um, I am, uh, my background's in the social sciences and political science. And the, the, the great kind of philosophical root of the social sciences is this idea of agency and structure or free will and determinism. And I know that there's a lot of people now that are questioning the idea of agency and are questioning the idea of free will. There's so much of our biology, um, so many of our actions that are driven by context, by biology, things like that. But the fact of the matter is that change happens, that humans drive change. We're, we're a different civilization than we were 10,000 years ago. We're a different civilization than we were 100 years ago. A hundred years ago, women couldn't vote. Black people couldn't couldn't vote. They, they're, they're, the equality was less than it was. It's not perfect now, but it's changed. And it's changed because agency exists, because we have the power to change the course of history. And um, I certainly have not faced, I have not confronted some of the challenges that other people have that have been able to have a really positive impact on the world. And so when I start to feel a little bit sorry for myself or things are a little bit too hard, I just, I have so many inspirational role models, many of them around me at the Wild Foundation and within conservation um, to keep me going and to keep me inspired. That's, that's great. Yeah, it's all, it's all about being involved in, the, in a good community. Community is so, so essential. And I can't help but poke into the agency and free will thing a little bit because I, I am a philosophy minor. That was like my favorite, those fit my favorite classes in school. And um, I was definitely very into like hard determinism, meaning that you don't have free will. Free will doesn't exist. Everything is cause and effect. ABC is what led you to uh, today. But I think the tendency to lean that way decreases when you see um, something beyond yourself, whether you are religious or you believe in the powers of the universe, you can see it can be very scary and there's too much stuff. But um, when you go out and you make choices and you try to help people, for example, you can see the direct impact of your choices in their inflections in their faces. And I, I don't know. I think that's that's really and then watching the Matrix and stuff is make, makes that. Uh, <laughs> what were you going to say? As a as a f philosophy um, minor was that yeah yeah well I'm a I'm a philosopher generally as, as, I would as a say philosopher then that deals with agency and structure and and as an falling on the determinism side yeah. there I'm sure somebody has asked you well when you cross the street do you look both ways um I'll say I, I, I if my mom's listening yeah <laughs> <laughs> and I mean. Even even the most deterministic of us, we look both ways. Yeah. Um, and there are there it agency falls on a spectrum. And I agree with the determinists in that true agency is rare, but um, it's also powerful. And it's not it's not always limited. There are there are moments in our lives, there are crossroads in our lives when sometimes it may not feel like it's big, but sometimes our choices will reverberate and they'll reverberate throughout history. And we may never even know the impact we really had, but it's there and we can see that in those who came before us. And at some point in time, we will be those that came before others. And so our choices matter for those people. Yes, they do. I have other thoughts, but I'm, I'm not going to add on that because that was just too beautiful. Um, to, to conclude the podcast, Vance, I would just love to hear any advice you have for young people who are passionate about building a better world. Sure. Thanks, Ethan. Um, you know, I started uh, with a with a comment on on a saying that means a lot to me about doing something you've never done. It's just two thoughts to end off my little bit here. One is, uh, you, you know, 
you can be a leader. You can go out there. You can you can mobilize people. You can do things. But um, humility is a key factor. Um, to be humbled in the face of powers greater than us, and nature is a power that's greater than us, um, I think is very important. And extending that humility as a sign of respect to other people by listening, by forming those relationships. Um, I think that's really important. You know, uh, for those of us who are U2 fans, um, you know, they have this song, Mysterious Ways, right? And um, uh, to me, life is a bit mysterious. Nature certainly is. You know, we think we know a lot about it, and then we, we learn a lot more. But there's this wonderful um, couple of lyrics from um, Mysterious Ways. Um, to touch is to heal. To hurt is to steal. If you want to kiss the sky, you'd better learn how to kneel. Um, and then he says, on your knees, boy. Um, that makes a lot of sense to me. Final thing I'll say is there's a lot of bad news around. Uh, uh, I, too, do not believe in hopelessness because that means death. Um, that said, there's a lot of bad news. We, we've got a lot of work to do. We can do it. What do I do on those days? I tell you, I turn the news off. That's for damn sure. Um, you know, because I'm a bit of a news junkie. And after a while, I say, no, that's enough because it's just ruining my head. Um, but the, 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 the other thing is something that I think of every morning, every evening. I mean, a constant thought is that, man, this is an exciting time. As Amy said, we, we have a chance here to make big change. And how exciting is that? Um, you know, I, as far as I'm concerned, we were born for this moment. You know, we're privileged to be here to try to create the change that is needed right now. Um, I, I love that. That was fantastic. I, I let's let's rise up to the occasion, all of us. Thank you so much, sure. both of you, Vance, Amy. I appreciate you taking some time to come on. I, I love what y'all are doing. Um, I'm I'm all good. Did you have any? Either of you have anything to add before we kind of sign off here? No. Nope. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to have both of you, and thank you so much. Thank you, Ethan. Stay well now. Thank you, Ethan. All right, everybody. So if you or anyone else you know is looking to buy or sell a home anywhere in the USA and would like to create thousands of dollars in donations without any cost out of pocket, please visit ccrboulder.com today.